It's been a tough week in our city. I think we can all acknowledge that. We're going to spend some time praying about that at the end of the service, but I want to go ahead and turn our attention to the Word now, and this will, in part, remind us of the one to whom we pray. If you've got a Bible, we'll be in John chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me say this is a, this is a challenging passage for some interesting reasons. The big idea is obvious, and we'll spend some good time talking about that, but I can't recall uh, a sermon, at least in recent history, where I read as many differing opinions on how to get to that main point and also all the things that happen along the way. We have questions here that you will see about a question that Jesus asked. We have questions here about how uh, it is to be interpreted, the man that he helps, so on and so forth. There's a lot that we have to kind of sort through, but the good news is still the good news from start to finish. So with that said, let me go ahead and put us in here, right here at verse 1. It says this, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who had been there had been an invalid for 38 years. Well, let's try to picture this if we can. To say that this is a sad scene is an understatement. It is possible that this roofed area it was almost like a swimming pool to think of it in our days around this pool that, that had people that, uh, that were coming there to be healed, and there were possibly hundreds of them, some of them possibly so feverish that they had to stay up under the shade because the heat of the sun was too much, some were blind from birth, others newly blind, people with withered hands and legs and arms, folks that were lame like the man that we meet here, it was a pitiful picture of broken humanity. You can only imagine the sense of desperation, of wasting away, the smell, the filth, the horrible sense of decay in that moment. So in that moment, that's where Jesus finds himself. And Jesus is going to do something here that is unexpected in one sense, completely on track in another sense. Let's talk a little bit more about why these people were here in the first place. If you have the ESV, which is what we work out of most here, you will notice that you don't have a verse 4. It did not get lost. But what has happened is basically there was an insertion made by an editor that was dropped in that we don't think, I don't think, many scholars don't think that that is actual scripture. It was more of an explanation that was inserted in later centuries as it was being copied and translated and so on. But it does give a sense of what they believed was happening here. There was this pool of water that from time to time would bubble, but the word on the street was that it bubbled because an angel would come down from heaven and touch the water, and whoever could get into that water first would be healed. Now, <clears throat> we know that today that doesn't make any sense. Nowhere else in the Bible does, uh, does it say that, that God heals in that way and so on and so forth. But when you look at where contemporary Hebrew angelology was at the time and you think about the desperation in this situation and you think about the type of <coughs> rudimentary health care that they would have had and so on, this has all the elements for a real healing legend to emerge. Then Jesus comes in at verse 6, and when he saw him lying there, talking about the man that had been there 30, or he'd been sick for 38 years, and he knew that he'd already been there a long time, so this is some kind of uh, little insight into Jesus' ongoing divine knowledge. He asked the man, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, <clears throat> let's talk about this question. Now, if this was us, this would possibly seem radically insensitive, wouldn't it? Well, of course he wants to be healed. He's been sick for 38 years. He is at a place where people come to be healed. <coughs> what in the world is Jesus up to? And here's the truth. Principle first, 
Jesus often operates in ways that are puzzling to us, but he always has a plan. And here's the honest opinion from me and from many scholars. I'm not sure exactly what Jesus was doing with this question. Some people point out <coughs> that it is an uh, opportunity for the man to put his faith in Jesus. We see that, that he does that in just a bit, so that's possible. It's also possible that it is a legitimate question in the way that we would think about it because one commentator points out someone that had had a hard time that had had a hard life they certainly couldn't make a good living by begging but they could potentially get their needs met by begging and so jesus could have been asking him or, or do you want to give up this life because once i make you well you're going to have to get out there and huff it with everybody else it's possible jesus was asking him that but whatever he was asking him, he, meant, he said what he said, and he meant what he said. But let's go back to that principle <coughs> as it applies to us. There are countless examples throughout the scripture where Jesus operates in this way. Unexpected, confusing, not in a way that we would do it. And in those moments, what is their response, or what should it be at least, and what is ours? It's to trust the Lord. It is to trust the Lord in exactly the way that David just led us. To trust the Lord when we don't see him working, when we don't feel him working, when we wonder what in the world is Jesus up to, it is to trust him. So in the midst of that, as we see Jesus operate in this unorthodox, unexpected way, it should call out from us a greater sense of trust in the Lord and a greater reminder of his trustworthiness. Now, <clears throat> let me also point out here, I found this interesting insight in the priest's word commentary. Their take on this was that this question, do you want to be well, is a question that Jesus is still asking us. Now, I think you can get off into the weeds with this question fairly easily, but I think they're on to something here that is worth putting before us because in a similar way, when Jesus comes to us and he says, do you want to be well? <coughs> if we're here and we're not yet Christians, that is a legitimate spiritual question for us. Are you willing to lay aside your own self-salvation project? Are you willing to lay aside all of the cares and the claims of this world and say, I'm going all in with Jesus? Do you really want to be well? And here's the good news about Jesus. He will take anyone and everyone, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been into, even this day. So if you really want to be made well, Jesus can make you spiritually well tonight. He can heal your greatest ailment, the sickness of soul. <clears throat> now, beyond that, for us as believers, this is a legitimate question for us as well. And again, I think this is where you got to be careful because this truth in the wrong hands can put people under a heavy weight. But the insight that they're pointing out was more like this. Let me just read it. <clears throat> the writer said, I'm speaking primarily of bitterness, unresolved conflict, the things that lie hidden within us. Sometimes when we experience these things, we're aware of them, but we didn't deal with them. We cauterized them. We layered them over. But they are realities within us, and they do affect our lives. Even though we can't put our finger on them, they take their toll. And as a result, we do not feel the authenticity of grace that we know we ought to feel. So through this question, I think Jesus comes to us, and he says, Do you really want to be made well? And he's not saying that in the sense, okay, well, you just need to work harder, and you need to try harder, and you need to believe harder. I think he's asking us that in the sense that, will you really bring it to me? Will you really let me work on this area? And could that lead into other things like counseling and like going deeper in community with confession of sin and so on and so forth? Some of those things that we are responsible to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, any work that we are, quote-unquote, doing 
needs to be done in the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus. So when Jesus asks this man, do you really want to be well? And he asks these men and women, do you really want to be well? It's an invitation for us to say, yes, Jesus, please do what only you can do through whatever means you choose to do it. So let me ask us this question today. What might the Lord be saying to you through this? What area of your life might he be asking you, do you really want to be well? It might be instantaneous like he does with this man. Chances are it won't. It might be a lifetime journey of two steps forward and four steps back and three steps forward and six steps back, but ultimately God will get us to glory where there will be no steps back and only steps forward into his radiance forever. So as we see the power of this one asking this question, which sometimes can be confusing, our answer needs to be the same. Yes, we want to be made well. Yes, you're the one to do it. And yes, we trust you in the midst of the trial. So friends, let's be encouraged by this passage tonight. Now look at verse 7. Because here, we have a little bit more interpretive decisions to make. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And what he is saying there is basically right in line with what we learned from history about how this system, if you want to call it that, worked. They believe when the water bubbled, the first one in got the healing. Now, my guess is the reason the water bubbled was probably some kind of natural phenomenon. There could have been some bubbling brook that, that popped out in there every once in a while. There could have been something seismic in the earth. <clears throat> so on and so forth, but they truly believe the first one in got the healing. And so his explanation is very, very temporal. It's very what's right in front of me, and it doesn't show much faith, if any faith, at this point. Because of that, <clears throat> some commentators, in fact, most commentators, though they vary in their degree, look at this man in a very negative light. D.A. Carson, who's very well-known and trusted on all things New Testament, said that verse 7 reads less like an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than rather a crotchety grumbling of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. Okay, That's a pretty hot take. I don't know if it's true or false, but that's what he thinks. <coughs> Other people came along, Leon Morris, another trustworthy guy, said that this man was a, quote, unpleasant creature, unquote. Now, again, I don't know if they're too hard on this guy, but they might be exactly right. There's definitely something here that's not right. But here's what I know is right. Even in the midst of whatever this guy has going on, why ever the way he is the way he is, <coughs> however the way he acts, Jesus is still good to me. Anybody else feel that? Because I think every one of us in this room tonight have moments where we are suspect at best and just outright sinful at worst. Sometimes even in the way that we respond to what the Lord is trying to do in our lives. And yet in the midst of that, God does not forsake us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He still steps in and helps just like he helps this guy. Now, you and I, probably not as patient as Jesus. I pretty much guarantee it. But we're not grading on our standard. We're looking at his standard. And we know that the Lord is that good. There's a guy named William Beveridge. <coughs> he said this about this, talking about his own struggle. He said, I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I cannot administer nor receive the holy sacrament, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of. And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. I wish that I could not relate to that. But we all can. And yet in the midst of that, God 
still helps. And let me give you one little piece of good news about your destiny. And this is not contingent upon how you feel it or not. One day, Jesus is going to have a group of people that have been cleansed with the washing of the water of the word. And that they will be presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And that they will be holy and without blemish. That is Ephesians 5. Clearly, Paul is using that to talk to husbands about how they need to love and care for their wives. But that is, is that not also a promise of the church of what God is and will do? See, when you're as messed up as we are, you need a Savior that's as good as he is. And we don't have any problem holding up our end of the deal. And he doesn't have any problem holding up his end of the deal. Because let me tell you one more piece of good gospel news right out of this right here. This man clearly desired to be healed, but he couldn't do it himself. Guess what? We can't do it ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't make our problems right beyond a certain degree. We get to the point where we must have divine intervention. It reminds me of the passage that we saw, that we alluded to just a few weeks ago, uh, ago from the book of Numbers, where the, the children of Israel are off into their shenanigans yet again. God allows serpents to come and bite them as a discipline to help get them back on track. But yet in the midst of all that, what did God do? He gave them a serpent on a stand as a type of Christ that they could look to and they could be saved and healed. And all they had to do was look. And in the same way that we see God at work there, we see God at work here. This man's responsibility was to look to Jesus and live. Our responsibility tonight is to look to Jesus and live. <coughs> and look at verse 8. Look what happens. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. So Jesus is so powerful that he can heal with just a word. But when he heals, <coughs> it was not an accidental time. It says, now that day was the Sabbath so the Jews said to the man that had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So principle first, he's so powerful that he can heal with just a word and he is Lord of the Sabbath. <coughs> That's extremely important in the book of John. Extremely important generally. But let's just stop and talk about this here for a minute. If there was a facepalm moment in this passage, it is right here. Because you would think that people that study the Bible all day, every day, and devote themselves <coughs> to the propagation of the Old Testament in their case would at least be excited when a miracle occurred in their midst and somebody who couldn't walk could walk. That's the exact opposite of what happens. It looks like there is no excitement here. And in fact, their immediate response <coughs> is to get after Jesus because he broke the rules. Because here's what's going on here. God gave rules for the Sabbath that basically said, you don't do any work. And the implication there was essentially <coughs> the, the, the work that someone did for a living. And the Sabbath was given as a gift so that the people would work and then they would stop and they would trust God on that seventh day and they would rest and it would be a light to the nations and so on and so forth. That was the point of the Sabbath. But as humans often do, even religious ones, they come along and they mess everything up. And these folks had come up with <coughs> 39 stipulated activities that were forbidden, including carrying anything from one domain to the other. And since this guy picked up his bed and he moved it from over here to over here, well, he has broken the rule. He has broken the oral tradition. He's not broken the Old Testament law, but he broke their law. Now, this is not a main point in this text, but I just want to make just a little side principle here that we need to make sure that our rules 
line up with God's rules. Now, we work hard as that as a church. We try not to come up with anything that is not explicit from Scripture or directly connected to Scripture. But I tell you, it, it just makes me sad to see how common this is. Most folks from our background, we, we kind of can sniff out this kind of legalism and spot it and say, mm, no. But it is still, at this day, in 2023, it is still so ubiquitous that you wouldn't believe it. This is a quick little story, but it is one worth telling. I've been listening to some different types of music in the recent weeks as I've started writing again. And, and this one guy in particular, you can tell he is particularly influenced and haunted by what was in his case a extremely fundamentalistic, legalistic, free will Baptist. That's what he came from. And it haunts his music. And when I listen to it, it, it makes me so sad because when he talks about that religion, and again, I'm not calling out that entire denomination. Please don't read anything into that. I'm talking about this guy's experience of it. It, it is completely different than what we would know as biblical Christianity. And this poor guy was in this church for who knows how long, and, it, and my assumption is they were doing the best that they could do. But his complete worldview about what the gospel is and what it offers and how it can help, it's just not a biblical understanding of it. It breaks my heart. And as I said this just a few weeks ago, let me say it to us again. This region, this part of the country is filled with people that still believe that. That their gospel is not freedom. Their gospel is not life in Christ. Their gospel is rule following and ascribing to certain ancillary doctrinal points. And part of our mission as a church We'll do this mostly through individual sharing. I mean, we talk what we talk here on Sunday, but the, the bulk of our faith sharing will be out in the community. Is to communicate the gospel to unbelievers that have never heard it or believers that have heard one that is so garbled that it almost ceases or does cease to be true Christianity. And so when we think about what they've done, my initial response here with these Pharisees is to go, oh my gosh. And then I have this like violently angry response where I'm turning over the you know, tables in my mind. But then the third thing, and this is where it'll get you, is to look at my own life and go, but where have I done the same thing? See, when we read the Gospels, one of the challenges with the Pharisees is we can wag our finger and say, I would never do that, I would never be that. But part of the way John and the other gospel writers frame the narrative is so that we do sometimes see ourselves in the Pharisees and go, I am guilty of that too, just over different issues. So let me kind of draw this down here. I think a particular way to apply this aspect here, let me speak to parents that have little kids and then even larger kids in the home. Discipline is hard. Parenting is hard. And if anybody's got it figured out, let me know. Because it's challenging in my house and every house I know. But when we make rules, we need to make sure that they line up with God's rules and that we're always looking for the heart. That we're always seeking to take the gospel to the heart. Because part of the problem here with the Pharisees wasn't just that they made up this bogus stuff and put it on top of the law. It's that they completely missed the point. This was a real man with real suffering that had been real sick for 38 years. He gets healed and they can't even see it because they missed the heart. Beyond that, there's more gospel use for us here than just with parents with little kids. Husbands, we can speak and interact with our wives. Wives, you can speak and interact with your husband in such a way that is all about rules and, and miss the real heart. This can happen with budgeting. Like, this is something I had to learn. I remember I was like, big spender, and then I discovered budgeting, and then I became, back in that day, the receipt Nazi. This was the day when I had to, like, keep them. I couldn't scan them. 
And it was, there was a season of my life where I was just awful about that until passages like this got through to me because it was all about zeroing out and making it work. But I was missing the point. There's 10,000 ways that we can take on this kind of idolatry. But there is one solution for all the problems. It's Jesus. The Jesus that can heal with the word. The Jesus that is Lord of the Sabbath. The Jesus that I think specifically and purposely did this miracle on this day in this way to force this issue to the surface. And that explains why what happens in the rest of the passage. Let's jump back into it. Look at verse 11. But he answered, so this is the man. The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So on the good news front, well, at least he knew it was Jesus, so that's good. On the bad news front, we don't see him even saying thank you. Maybe he did, but John didn't give him a shout out here. So that says probably something about his, hey, kids, get off my lawn kind of character. But then on top of that, in verse 12 and following, he doesn't even come to Jesus' defense. Look at this. They asked him, so this is the Pharisees. Uh, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. So this is one of those times where Jesus kind of dips out. And there was, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And again, this one is tricky. Because... You, you, you look at this and you go, okay, well, did this guy get into this mess because he sinned in the first place? Now, we know for sure, and John tells us uh, in John chapter 9 as much, that not every sickness is a result of sin. We know that. But sometimes sickness and difficulty can be a result of sin. Like there are people that get diseases because of certain kinds of drug use and so on. In addition to that, sometimes it can have such a season of, of sinfulness with alcohol, for example. You can destroy parts of your body and so on and so forth. So there is a way where sin does lead to sickness, but it doesn't always. And Jesus isn't clear here on exactly what this is, uh, what, he, what he means, but I do think there is a helpful warning to us to, to look at this and go, hey, I don't even want to come close to that line. I want to try to stay straight with Jesus as I can. And then on top of that, he doesn't make it super clear other than we do know for sure what he is trying to do is further help this man. And again, think about this. Verse 7, he, gave, he gives Jesus a weird answer. He helps him anyway. Verse 11, he doesn't even say thank you, it seems. But still in verse 14, when Jesus bumps back into him, after all of that nonsense, and now Jesus is about to be in big trouble, he is still trying to help this man. Oh, God, give us grace to be like that, and also let us see that that's how the Lord is with us. We can be unruly, troublesome, huge handful to deal with, and the Lord never gives up on us. I'm telling you, we see ourselves in the Pharisees, but we better see ourselves in this man, too. We're all over the place in this. But keep looking. Verse 15. The man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So finally, the truth comes out clearly. And then watch these editorial comments that follow. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here's the last principle. Jesus is equal with God. And this assertion is why the Jews become determined to kill him. Now let's unpack this. I would say that despite all of the I'm not sure leading up to this point, I am 100% sure this is what John is trying to tell us in this passage. 
because part of the purpose of the book of John, and he says this, and he says this, and he says it, and he says it again, is to communicate the reality of who Jesus Christ was and is. Crystal clear, lightning bolt, and Jesus makes it here inescapable. He did this, this way, on the Sabbath, in front of these people, to force the issue, to confront their idolatry and say, listen, you have heaped up all these rules that you didn't have the right to do. Let me show you what the real truth is. Then on top of that, he shows his divine prerogative to heal in the way that he wants to at the place that he wants to. Then on top of that, he does it in this way on this day. And then instead of stopping to defend himself, when he was called on it, I'm sure they had some kind of conversation here about it, most likely, or he knew these thoughts were being formed at least. He moves forward with the plan. And the plan was to be Lord of all and eventually to give his life for all who would believe. And he makes that crystal clear. Let's dig into details of it just for one moment here. When he says in verse 17, when he talks about my father is working until now and I am working, he is drawing this line in saying that he is the son of God. But he's not saying he's the son of God in the way that you and I would be sons and daughters of God. He is attributing a unique and special relationship of equating the two. That I am divine, that God is working through me, that I am doing his will and his work. And he doesn't ever stop working and doesn't violate the Sabbath because he's God and he can do that. And I'm not going to do that either. I'm going to do what I want to do when I need to do it. I'm Lord over all this. And I'm not breaking the rules because this is the kind of thing that needs to be done. And then in these editorial comments here in 18, this word that is being used here, uh, actually the word back in 16, but then the idea in 18, when he talks about they were persecuting Jesus, what he's getting at there is that it, it, they weren't just upset about this one thing that Jesus did. They instituted their action plan that did not stop. They came after Jesus and came after Jesus and came after Jesus from this point on. And you'll see that. The way this miracle works is almost a little bit of a hinge point where chapters 1 through 4, we got introduced to Jesus. Now we see that the conflict has really arisen and it is trouble from here on out. But at the end of the day, I think the real issue here for these folks, I think it's two things. Number one. They did not believe and receive Jesus for who he was. They just thought he was some guy. He could do stuff. He spoke with authority, but like he is a blasphemer and he's got to go. And number two, which is connected to number one, he was an affront and a continual assault of their authority. They wanted the power. They wanted to keep the power. But the Bible says there is one God and no other. And so part of what I think we need to be confronted with and simultaneously rest in is the authority of Jesus. Let's talk about the confronted part front first. If we are here and we belong to Jesus, the Bible says that we are not our own and we are bought with a price. So we don't get to be the despots and directors of our own lives. We have surrendered that right and that responsibility to one who is more than adequate and up to the job. His authority, his lordship should be the central organizing principle of our lives. Okay? That confronts us all because every one of us when we sin, what are we ultimately doing? Well, we're trying to take the reins of our own life in whatever way. And so when that happens, we need to immediately go back to Jesus. And we need to realign ourselves with ultimate reality. We need to confess our sins and put ourselves again. Hey, listen, Jesus, you're in charge. I want you to be in charge. 
please help. I know I'm like this guy. I know I'm like these Pharisees. I believe you're going to help me. So we are confronted by the authority of Jesus. But let me also say this. We are comforted by the authority of Jesus. Because let's get real and honest tonight. When things happen like happened this week, I mean, you talk about crazy and unprovoked. Where do we go? I mean, are there things that need to be considered about guns and all that? Of course. Are there things that need to be considered about all the other issues and all of this stuff? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, what is the ultimate hope that we have? It's only the authority of Jesus. It's only the sovereignty of God. What comfort in a true and lasting way can we have? It's only God. That's our only hope. And so part of what I think we have to confront when we see unspeakable evil like we saw this week, almost to the point where that we almost don't even know what to do with it, the thing that is 100% for sure that we do is we go back to Jesus. That's it. That's number one. And then we think about all the other things, absolutely. But the number one thing is we go to Jesus. Because he's got everything that we need. He's got the comfort, because he said he's the God of all comfort. He's got the wisdom. He's got the ability to heal. He's got the ability to guard and guide us as we try to love people and unimaginable situations the authority of Jesus is our only real hope and I, I don't know what the future holds I don't I, nobody in this room does but that old saying about but I know who holds the future I used to think at times that was a little trite but the older I get that's the kind of truth we need buddy because there's so much coming at us. And it is coming at us from every single angle. The financial system, the judicial system, the stuff like this, random acts of violence, all these different things. Our hope is Jesus. It is. And so, I think in one way... This passage is, is, is really confusing and difficult for me, but in other ways, it's as simple as it gets. Trust God. Trust the one who can heal. Trust the one who can help. Trust the one who won't give up on you even when you are difficult. Trust God. And so that's, that's what I want to lead us in tonight. David's going to come in just a minute and lead us in. Uh, let's just do this right here. In just a minute. Uh, we'll take communion. Um, but I want to spend some time praying for these people. Actually, let's spend the time praying before we take communion. Sorry if that was unclear. But I just want to spend some time confessing our trust to the Lord and bringing our brothers and sisters that are in so much pain in this city. Just bringing them before the Lord. Because just like he helped this man in this passage, he can help the men and women in this room and in our city. He is our hope. So let's pray, and then David's going to come, and he's going to lead us in some special prayer. Lord, we're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for your kindness and compassion toward this man, toward us, Lord, we need your help. I feel like every single situation now is so complex. Not just the stuff in Nashville, but everything that all of us are having to deal with at work, some situations at home, situations in marriage or a marriage close to us. There's just so much pain and there's so much complexity. 
But Lord, in the midst of that, we thank you for this simple truth to trust you and to bring one another to Jesus. Lord, we need your help. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you and bring one another to you and ask for that help. So friends, whatever is individually heavy on your heart tonight, one of those places that might fall into the category that that one commentator was talking about, where do we really or want to, where do we really need, really want to be healed? Let's take that specific thing and put it before the Lord now. And we're just, we'll just pray. Maybe, maybe you don't have anything on your mind right now. Well, I guarantee you the people on your road do. So you just pray for them. And Lord, we just ask that you would just unleash your spirit in a, in a, in a fresh way on whatever that particular issue is. And Lord, we ask that you would attend to it and you would work on it. Lord, something else in this passage that we need to bring before you. Some of us, all of us, we can focus on rules and miss the point. Forgive us for that. Help us with that. Help us to be gentle with one another. Particularly in areas where we may not agree with one another, in the home or whatever. In the workplace, help us to speak with gentleness. Lord, beyond that, I just pray that you would give us an increased sense of awareness of your lordship and your rightful claim over our lives. And also the immense comfort that that provides. So many people this week just running around. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do with this. We know what to do with this. Bring it to Jesus. Lord, that's only because you are Lord over all. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would give us just a great sense of awareness of the reality of who you are and the power of who you are both from this passage and from all passages. And that you would hear us now as we pray, particularly for this deep tragedy that's happened in our own city. I want to pray now for the terrible, terrible tragedy past Monday. Um, some of us in this room were connected to those involved. It's a tragedy no matter where it happens. But when it hits so close to home, we feel it a little bit deeper. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we come to you with sadness in our hearts. We've cried. We've grown angry. We've been dismayed that this could happen again, this time so close to home. We've been stuck in, in disbelief. We've been stuck in so many emotions. It is not right that there are parents tonight that are going to sleep without their children. It's not right that there's a school without a teacher and without a headmaster, without a custodian. That there is deep anguish and bitter weeping in our city, Lord. So what do we do in such times, Father? When our hearts break and we don't even know what to say. We come to you. 
we come to you with our sadness and our despair and our anger and our disbelief and all of the other emotions because you are the one place that we can come with it all. We don't have any words to say to make it right. And so we look to your word. And you tell us in your word that sometimes there are groanings too deep for words. And in those times, our tears are our prayers as your spirit intercedes for us. And that is amazing. We thank you for that gift. And there are many in our city. They don't have anything but that right now. So we come before you and we let you help us and trust you to help those who are most affected. We don't know why this happened. We can't answer that question. You're not asking us to. But one thing we do know is that it's not because you don't care. We know you care. You sent your only begotten son into the world to die on a Roman cross to redeem and restore this broken mess that we've made. Whatever our hearts feel, whatever the hearts of people in our city feel tonight, we have a God who feels it too. More than that, we have a God who can and will put an end to such evil. There is a day coming when all will be set right, when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Though the world is troublesome, you have overcome the world in Christ. Though we are weak in the face of such evil, you are mighty enough to do something about it. So, Father, in that comforting place, we come to you tonight in prayer for all involved. We pray for the families of the little children who died so tragically and so young. We pray for, the, for Hallie's family, for Evelyn's family, for Will's family. I pray that you would give supernatural strength and grace to persevere in faith. They need you, Lord. Losing a child is so painful. Losing a brother or sister is so painful. Be their comfort. We pray for their friends at Covenant School. So many of them witnessed unspeakable evil. It's likely there will be nightmares ahead. There will be questions. There will be sadness, probably fear. Comfort them. Draw near to them. Remind them of your love and your care. We pray for the Peak and the Kuntz and the Hill families. Though they were much older than the three children, their lives were full of your amazing grace and were a light in this dark world. And they leave behind grieving families and friends. And so we pray for those who are in such pain. Be near in the, in the way that only you can be. We pray for our city, for our nation, for this world in which darkness is almost not even shocking anymore. We pray for our community. We pray that you would pour your grace from above and heal our land. We pray for the shooter's family, Lord. Their pain matters too. Comfort them. Help them. We all need so much grace and mercy. We thank you for the bravery of the Nashville police officers who so courageously entered and saved so many more lives. It could have been worse, and I thank you that it wasn't. Comfort them, Lord. They were faced with hard things and did the right thing, but the road ahead may not be easy for them. 
Father, we know that this world will not always be the same. One day, all the sad things will come untrue. Hasten that day. We know that you can grant a peace that goes beyond all understanding and that you can work miracles in the face of deep despair. You've done it before. Do it again. Father, you know our tears. We have a Savior who lived life on this earth as a man of sorrows. We have your Holy Spirit who comforts us in all of our afflictions and even uses those afflictions to comfort others. So Lord, use us as you see fit to spread your good news and to bring hope to a hopeless world. Some of us have relationships with those personally affected. Father, let us be a comfort to them. Use us to help and to heal and to point to you in the dark times. Teach us to weep with those who weep. Father, bind up our wounds. Bottle up our tears. Remind us of your goodness. Be our light when we can't see. Give us hope when we can't feel. Grant us peace when we need it. Just be who you are. And show us your glory. We know that one day you will wipe every tear from our eyes. And we long for the day when our sons and daughters are no longer slain, but instead the streets of the city shall be full of the boys and girls playing. We have hope because though Jesus has died, he has risen again. Though the darkness is really dark, there is a real light shining and the darkness cannot overcome it. There is a day of hope out ahead. One day Christ will return and make all things new. Oh Lord, how we long for that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.